1: Hello everyone and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Reagan Gillam, a host on the channel, and today I'm talking to Dr. Marisel C. Moreno, who is the author of the book Crossing Waters, Undocumented Migration in, in Hispanophone Caribbean and Latinx literature and art published by the University of Texas Press. And I should say that Crossing Waters won the Gordon K. and Sybil Lewis Book Award for the Caribbean Studies Association in 2023, and so congratulations, Dr. Moreno, and welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you, Dr. Gilliam. It's it's really a pleasure to to be here, and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to to read the book carefully and uh, have this conversation. So, thanks.
1: Yeah, thank you, and welcome. Uh, welcome to the show, and I'm really excited to hear about the book, even though I've I've read it. I really enjoy hearing authors uh, talk more about their points. And so to begin with, um, I, I have a question, I guess, about you, where we typically begin with a question about the author. And so I wanted to say that you are the author of the previous book, Family Matters, Puerto Rican women authors on the island and mainland. And this is from University of Virginia Press. Um, But the book we're going to talk about today is, of course, Crossing Waters. And this book examines cultural production concerning undocumented migration in the Hispanophone Caribbean. And so how did you come to study Caribbean literature and how did you come to write Crossing Waters?
2: Yes. um, So I was born and raised in Puerto Rico and always really loved literature uh, reading i I was really into reading some of the you know canonical authors uh, of puerto rico and uh, latin america too but i you know i was always really interested in that even you know high school years and and all of that um so i I also had an interest in, in in women authors that's why my first book ended up being on puerto rican women authors and when I went to grad school, I started looking more seriously at diaspora literature, uh, starting with Puerto Rico, but then moving on, you know, broader um, thinking of, you know, authors, you know, from with Cuban roots, Dominican roots, et cetera. And that kept on expanding. So so that that interest in diaspora works has, has been there for, for a while. In terms of crossing waters, I, because of that experience of going up, growing up in Puerto Rico, um, I was—I mean, looking back, I think I was really um, impacted by seeing in the Puerto Rican newspapers so many headlines, uh, front pages about. Yolas, you know, these small boats, uh, uh, makeshift boats that that are made by people usually in the Dominican Republic to cross. So, so many reports about drownings, capsizing, and all of that. That, that was growing up, and I didn't really think about it. I didn't really have the maturity to think about it much, except that I was really distraught by the constant reporting on this. And then growing up and even going to to grad school, just discovering how strong the discourse was about migration um, along the Mexico-US border and all of the lives lost and and all the violence that comes with that. But then in the back of my mind, always thinking, Something somewhat similar is happening in the Caribbean, you know, and I don't hear too many people talking about this. So that was an interest of mine that is just kind of being in the back of my mind. Um, one crucial moment came when uh, I read Mayra Santos Febrez's, um Afro-Puerto Rican uh, poet and intellectual Mayra Santos Febreses. uh collection of poetry both people um, I read that when when it came out and it really stunned me it was not only it was beautiful <laughs> but it was really the first work of Puerto Rican literature that was seriously t- in my mind addressing the humanitarian crisis of migration from the Dominican Republic to Puerto Rico Haiti to Puerto Rico just, all of those sea voyas, I cannot even say that word, Um, these trips, right? Um, And realizing too that it's not like the theme of undocumented migration to Puerto Rico had been absent from Puerto Rican letters, but it had been treated, I'm thinking of works by uh, Ana Lidia Vega, uh, Magali Garcia-Ramis, they had stories, but they were more like humorous, you know, they were not really getting into uh, even, you know, in, in, into some of the the more somber themes um, and including the risk of death at sea, right? So that when I read that collection out immediately, you know, I was working on my first book and I was like, I need to stop. I need to write an article about this because I just felt like I needed to say something. So that was my first incursion like more formally into trying to like if you read that it, it was published in in 2007. So 2007 very early um, and looking back, you know, I I think yeah, that was the first intent uh, from my part to to also start thinking of the Caribbean as a border zone, you know, it—it it was just the seed of that, right, at that moment. But it stayed with me, and don't ask me why. I continue to be, over the years, pretty, you know, very interested in works of literature, especially, and then it moved on to also include works of art that had to do with that migration like whether it was from Cuba to Puerto Rico, which also happens, um, or or the Balceros trying to make it to the uh, Florida Keys, or, you know, just the maritime migration and how these movements are happening and the reasons why they are happening, why are people embarking in these extremely risky journeys, right? So I, you know, anything I came across, stories, poems, um, works of art I just kind of you know kept thinking about them I I would teach here and there you know include some of these works in my courses too and and slowly but surely you know it gets to a point where I realize there's a book <laughs> I mean I have enough material I've been interested in it I've been you know reading these works teaching the works or even writing about some of them I'm like this can be a book you know, and so of course I needed a lot more research <laughs> in addition, but um, th- that's kind of like how it came about. But out of that interest to um, to continue to explore this area that I felt was well, the actual phenomenon of undocumented migration, I felt was re- remained somewhat invisible. You no. Know? Uh, and as someone who then w- was pretty immersed in like Latinx studies, to continue to see that invisibility, I was like, well, you know, maybe I should <laughs> do this. <laughs> maybe no. I should write uh, and and get you know get the conversation going. Not started because it's I'm not the first one to to write about the topic, of course, uh, mm-hmm. but just. Trying to provoke, you know, push yeah. the feel a little bit,
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You definitely bring more visibility to this uh, topic. I think that many people in the United States would not, you know, would not hear about. Um, and that's fascinating to that story that you tell. How the seed can germinate over these years and how it can. You can be working on the first book and, you know, finish it and it can come out and then you can, it can, that, that seed can sort of orient your vision to collecting more and more material. And then the next thing you know, you have another book, um, as well. So I think that's, that's really instructive as well for other people who are, you know, in, in the Academy or not, um, when we think about these projects and how they're, how they, how they come about.
2: Right. Yeah. Um,
1: And so the book examines, um, as you said, undocumented migration from and between um, Puerto Rico, the Dominican Republic, Haiti and Cuba. And, you know, as you said before, there's this uh, somewhat invisibility in the United States um, where there's not where we don't think much about undocumented migration between Caribbean islands. Um, yet from your book, we can see that several writers, poets, and artists are thinking about this migration and creating work around it. And so I wondered if you could talk about this migration. Um, you, you kind of asked these questions in your earlier answer. Um, you know, why are people leaving their home countries? What are they seeking? And, and maybe why is this, this migration relatively invisible uh, in the United States?
2: Those are great questions. Um, I think part of the invisibility has to do with, well, th- there's there's several reasons, but I, the fact that uh, the Mexico-US border has been so central to uh, migration studies and the migration discourse in the United States, generally speaking, right. And even when we think of the fields of, you know, border studies or borderland studies, that tends to be the the border, you know, that uh, becomes like the marker, you know, for all other borders. Um, so there's that, and for good reasons, obviously, <laughs> um, in, in terms of you know sharing that territory between these two countries and the actual uh, number of people crossing through it and all of that. So, so that's, that's part of it. It, it. It's just part of the US centeredness, I think, of how people think of migration in this country. Um, the Caribbean tends to be somewhat marginalized in particular, you know, in in several fields. Um, with with some exceptions, I'm thinking Latin American studies. I'm thinking even Latinx studies. You know, um, you you could claim that that more needs to be done when it comes to the the Caribbean, but. The other part is that the Caribbean itself, you know, people are moving um, through a region that is not a landmass, right? So we tend, I think, you know, and reading from, you know, archipelago um, studies and island studies and all of that, islands tend to be analyzed in relation to larger land masses, like island continent, you know, that sort of relationship. Um, so that's the other part, you know, so then the, the movement between islands then tends to be somewhat erased. The other aspect of it is, too, that when, you know, when people drown their bodies, it's very hard to recuperate the remains of those who died trying to cross, you know, that's another added layer to it. So again, I think there's many reasons why the the Caribbean doesn't get the attention that that it probably deserves, given the numbers of interdictions in the thousands per year. <laughs> um, so, and those are only the interdictions. You know, then you have to think of the ones who didn't make it, right? So, how many lives are lost trying to to make this uh, journey? So, what, and then you asked about reasons why people are migrating. Uh, And to be honest, um, there has always been a movement, of course, within what we know as the Caribbean region today, Uh, even uh, from, you know, thousands of years ago, six, seven thousand years ago, you know, indigenous uh, peoples were moving very actively. In that region, and and we know this because scientists have studied, you know, um, the the ruins or markings on caves and 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 all of that, like in Mo- Mona Island, which which I bring up in the book. Um, so there's always been a movement, but then of course during the conquest, it also became a, a very heavily trafficked um, area. Um, um, you know, we had all the colonizers in the area. And then, with the transatlantic slave trade, you know, so so it's been a region that, you know, for for a lot of it, its history has been characterized by active displacement, a lot of forced displacement too, right? Um, so that, that that's one thing. But then, you know, come bringing it to more modern times. Um, I think looking in in very general ways we can think of you know extreme poverty as a reason um, uh, political persecution um, and then natural disasters as three main reasons why people have been uh, why, why the movement between these islands has increased um, and I would say um, really picking up um, um, in the 60s, let's say, you know. um, But for each country, for each sending society, the circumstances are going to be different. That's why I would say, like, in very general terms, these are some main reasons. But, you know, you have to look at Cuban history and think, okay, well, there's been different... Moments of displacement of Cuban exiles. Um, I focus on the case of the Balceros, and I can talk a little bit about that later. Um, But what were the reasons? You know, so we had the special period uh, taking place, the Soviet Union had collapsed, which led to an extreme uh, economic crisis in Cuba. Um, So that led many Cubans to try to escape as a form of survival. Uh, In the case of the Dominican Republic, um, it's been mostly because of economic reasons. Uh, In the case of Haitians, trying to go to the Dominican Republic or even now to Puerto Rico, because we've seen a significant increase in Haitian migration to Puerto Rico uh, in recent years. Um, The circumstances have to do with politics, it has to do with extreme poverty, it has to do with violence, anti-blackness. Anti-blackness is something that actually unites all of those spaces and has provoked migration. So so part of what I try to do um, um, in in the first chapter uh, is provide a very condensed (laughs) mini history of all of these uh, spaces and how those histories connect to the migration that we have seen in, in the last half century or so. Um, Because I think it's, it's important to recognize some of the broad um, ties that, that you can see among the different islands and and the people trying, you know, to, to make it, you know, especially to Puerto Rico uh, as a, as a um, stepping stone to the continental United States, but but also super important, I think, to recognize the differences, the conditions uh, at a particular moment, and be very specific about that. So so yeah, so that's something that that I would like to to stress.
1: Yeah, yeah, and the book goes into those contexts and those histories, um, and it, it you, you know you you definitely flesh that out for us for these different countries um, in each uh, both in each chapter as well as in the um, in the beginning of the book in the introduction, and you also advance um, some some kind of larger theories about this kind of undocumented migration in the Caribbean, um, and and in doing that you engage with border theory. And the, you know, and as well as archipelago theory. Um, and so the border theory, you know, it tends to focus on the US Mexico border. Um, but of course, you're drawing from that to theorize the specificity of what you're talking about in the Caribbean. And so I wondered um, if you could talk about your theory of the sea as border and bridge and the agency of the migrant.
2: So I, I think I would like to begin by not claiming that it is my theory, because to be 100% honest, I try to let the works that I was examining speak to me. And uh, I'm thinking of the work of Cheresa de Garcia, Dominican uh, visual artist, who refers to the water Basically, as a border and a bridge, right? So I I drew inspiration from from that, right? Um, to to emphasize those ideas. But but you're correct. You know, part of what I was trying to do was to lead, including myself, right, the reader and myself, to think of the how the Caribbean functions as a border, but. We have border theory that is really land-based, right? So you cannot. Then you come into the um, to the um, issue of not being able to be able to apply border theory to the case of the Caribbean because of the specificities of this types of regions, right? Which led me to look into archipelago theory, right? And and also see how islands are um, thought about, constituted as conglomerates and, and all of that. So with border theory, I was trying to figure out, okay, so how, how do these connect? How can we think of them as connected? And part of what in border theory there is the notion that the border can also be a bridge. And in archipelago theory, there is the notion that water can be one or the other. So I saw that possibility of the border turning into a bridge as the link between these two very specific theories border versus archipelago, right? And I kind of held on to that. Um, but again, all of this in, inspired by the works, many of the works I was reading or, or looking at, right? Or even reading um, interviews with some of the artists, etc., and and trying to understand how they were thinking about the role of water. Um, so yes, I held on to to that idea of water um, having this dual role, right? Uh, It's ambiguous that way because it can work as a border, and that's very clear in the cases where these journeys are not successful. Uh, But when they are successful, when people make it to the other side, well, then it ended up, working as a bridge right and um, so it's this duality of life and death it can be one or the other and honestly the people who are embarked on these journeys you know it's not like everyone hopes for the best right but you never know what's going to happen a- along the way so it's hard to predict so that unpredictability uh, of the water is uh, something that interested me um for sure. I'm not sure if I answer your question. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, you definitely answered it. And I was gonna ask then about the agency of the migrant as well, or did, did you already?
2: Yes, um, so I talk about agency of movement um, of the migrant um, as a way to, to c- call attention, because of course, I think about these journeys as a case of forced migration. Uh, This is something that I discuss in the book. Um, People are forced out of sheer necessity and the will to survive, right? It, It ends up being, this is the last resort to try to survive the circumstances that they're living. So that, somewhat renders them in the public view as as victims but I also noticed in many of the texts um, the literature I was um, engaging with some of the works of art that they resisted presenting the migrants only as victims right that they're is also this other side where they are making a decision. You know, it is their will to survive that leads them to attempt the journey. And I wanted to highlight that um, again because I was trying to let the, the works I was thinking of uh, kind of lead the way in terms of how we think about this type of migration. Um, so I'm not saying they're not victims, but I'm just saying that, that we should recognize that they are defying, right? They are challenging the, the status quo. They are challenging their own governments, right? Um, especially if there's, uh, you know, I'm thinking the case of Cubans before Castro you know the Cuban balseros before Castro said, "Okay, whoever wants to leave can leave." Before you know that it was like illegal in Cuba to try to escape, so they were defined. They're they're also defined the U.S. Right? <laughs> um, so I think we need to also recognize um, the ways that that um, these migrants empowered themselves through this process. Whether it ends up with them victimized or not, that's had a whole other conversation. But I think that's
1: where I was coming from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I like that idea of sort of voting with your feet, or how the, the migrant is able to pack up and go um, under these uh, circumstances that they these conditions that they no longer want to um, you know want to sustain. So it's a very powerful idea. Um, and so in the book. The, in the introduction, you lay out these this context and your ideas, and then you divide the book into chapters. And each chapter focuses on a particular country or island, um, or island country. And each chapter takes up several different forms of cultural production. Um, and so, in Puerto Rico, you discuss the island of Mona, and um, one of the works you examine is uh, *Viaje a Isla Mona*, or I think *Trip to*. The, Isla de Mona the yeah. Island. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's by Maida Montero. Mm-hmm. And I was fascinated by this young adult novel um, because it depicted like the mix of these Puerto Rican, many Puerto Rican boys and one Dominican boy who migrated to Puerto Rico. And he's absconding with the one of the boy's father's boats um, and sailing to the island to rescue the Dominican boy's brother. Um, and so and in much of the cultural production you look at, it focuses on adults, um, but this one focuses on children. And so I wondered, um, you know, how does undocumented migration play out in this uh, coming of age novel? <laughs>
2: That's a great question, and you are very uh, correct to note that all of the works, pretty much that I examine, uh, are um, are about adults. Uh, so this is the only one that that has to do with with children and, and coming of age, and that's one um, one reason why I thought it was important to talk about it, because I am trying to, I was trying to talk about different types of uh, uh, literary genres, right? And and this is the only young adult book that, that I examine. But it's also the only novel that I am aware of <laughs> about uh, Mona Island produced in Puerto Rico uh, or anywhere else. <laughs> so it happens to be a YA Novel, and so I thought it was really, really important to to them pay attention to it uh, and see how um, these dynamics were being portrayed. And I, I think you know, I, I am, I really believe in the power of YA literature to to create awareness uh, among children and teenagers about the issues that they are facing and. And to me, it was really powerful to find this work where, where the main character, Tolio, right? He's a Dominican boy, um, young teenager. I forget exactly how old he is, but he his mother first comes undocumented to Puerto Rico and then he comes undocumented to Puerto Rico. So it's portraying this experience that, so many Dominican children are living on the island, right? Uh, where they are constantly facing um, xenophobia and racism from, Dominic- from Puerto Rican society, which is very, very strong. And I can, you know, I say that I'm a Puerto Rican, I witnessed it, I lived around it my whole life. I'm very aware of the very intense prejudices against Dominicans and Haitians, uh, particularly. So I thought it was uh, really interesting then to, to, to see how this character, Tolio, who at first is bullied at school, you know, people are making fun of him, even because of his name, Um and there comes a moment where he actually does something good for someone and then the other kids recognize him. It's almost like because he saves this other child, then he is recognized as a human being in the eyes of the Puerto Rican kids who had been bullying him before. But for whatever reason, they unite forces and, you know, their solidarity. You know, uh, Tolio thinks his brother, um, they get a mysterious phone call and they hear that his, his brother, who was coming from the Dominican Republic in Ayola, uh, supposedly was stranded in Mona Island. So they attempt to rescue him, right? But it all becomes, a, an ex, in a way, an excuse for uh, the author to address what Mona Island means. It's this mysterious place in the Puerto Rican psyche, right, that we're fascinated by, but we cannot get to because it's not easy to get there. Plus it's protected. Um, and we hear all these stories about it, right? But, but then there's this other dark side to it, which is that it's a place where many people who are um, m- many migrants without papers who are coming from Dominican Republic, Haiti, Uh, Cuba, like other places too, get stranded there because that's the first spot they can find before reaching the the west coast of the main island of Puerto Rico. Uh, I I do have to uh, clarify that Mona Island is part of the Puerto Rican archipelago, uh, just for the listeners, right? Um, uh, But it's uninhabited. It's it's called like the Galapagos of the Caribbean and very very difficult conditions uh, there's like barely any trees there's no access to water um so you know dying from um, heat stroke and um, um, thirst and 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 all you know hunger because there's nothing to eat either these are all very um very serious uh, dangers that people face who are stranded there, right? So sometimes people become stranded there um, because they're capsizing or run out of gas or whatever. But there's also this other side where smugglers actually drop off migrants there, telling them, you arrived to Puerto Rico. And technically they have. Because Mona Island is part of Puerto Rico, but there's no way, really, to survive it. So, so it's all you know, kind of connecting this idea of Mona, uh, which is really you know uh, um, this again, like I said, mysterious uh, place in the Puerto Rican imaginary, with this very real issue of. Undocumented migration and what happens to people and the violence exerted towards people there um, through the lens of a teenager. And I know, you know, it, it's an adventure. And uh, obviously, there, there's a lot of, um, they are able to overcome challenges that. In reality, they probably would not have been able to overcome, right? But it's still a great teaching tool. So I, I really appreciate that coming of age being tied to an awareness about the the reality of many Dominicans in Puerto Rico and the the possibility, the imagining of solidarity among Puerto Ricans and Dominicans, which is something we don't see enough
1: Yeah, I like that too. And uh, reading your description and your analysis of that of that book, it was really it was fascinating. The as you said, the, at the end, it sort of gives us this possibility of um, you know of comradeship and overcoming the challenges together um, that the boys that the boys face. Um, and so I wanted to ask you about um, one of your other examples, and you you already mentioned her, um, Sherazad Garcia. And um, because one of the historical precedents precedents that you describe in the book uh, for undocumented migration is the transatlantic slave trade. Um, And so this appears throughout the book Uh, But I wanted to, I guess, draw your attention to the chapter on the Dominican Republic um, because this also comes to the fore in this idea of racializations of Dominican migrants. Um, And so, and and again, uh, you you talk about this with the work of Sherezad Garcia, just as one example. Um, But what is the role then of race and blackness in this uh, cultural production around undocumented migration?
2: Yes, Um, so I will say that... um... When it comes to Dominican migrants, uh, they have in the Puerto Rican Im- imaginary they have been racialized, right, uh, as as black. And but the truth is that most of the people, and now I'm speaking in very general terms, who are attempting these journeys, you know, um, within the Caribbean, this. Um, most are Black people or Afro-descendant people. Um, And why? Because of anti-Blackness, of all of the ways that in their own countries they are either persecuted or uh, not um, given the same opportunities, right, as other people. So they tend to be, and and Juan González and... uh, um, and and in in the Latino um, the Afro Latino reader, uh, and Miriam Jimenez Roman uh, talk about this that the majority of the undocumented people in the Caribbean tend to be uh, black people, right? And and so there's there's already a link to. You know, we cannot just look at the present and try to understand based on the conditions that we have at the moment. We need to look historically, where are the roots uh, of these displacements? So in the work of Ch- Chereza de Garcia, and, and there's others too, uh, uh, the issue of uh, Blackness and connecting Blackness to, to the conquest and the transatlantic slave trade come to the fore. Um, so uh, there's a work by, um, by Cherezade Garcia, uh, called, uh, um, um, Supertropics, the liquid highway. It's this painting of, a uh, um, black carob looking girl who is floating, um, in the sea and the sea seems you know it's rough, it's rough, but but it seems like you know she's she's attempting the journey uh, by herself. She has a hat that looks like a Disney uh, uh, mouse hat, um, which signifies the US as a final destination, but she's also uh, wearing a gold chain. A pretty big chain, and that's uh, that connects with the image of the of the in in Dominican uh, culture of the cadenu uh, in Dominican American culture that these people who they dress in a very specific way, youth right, are wearing these big gold chains, etc. This one has a crucifix, so the gold, the crucifix. I read it in in when I'm analyzing that specific work as a obviously a reference to, to the, on the one hand to the riches that they envision or, or the, the wealth that um, they associate with living in the United States, right? Which is not achievable at home. But at the same time, it's also a reminder of the, of the role of the Catholic Church with the crucifix, right? And the gold, and that history of conquest and extraction, right? From the Dominican. And because of um, mining, um, first the Spanish used indigenous peoples, you know, to do to work in the mines, trying to ob- obtain all of these riches, right? And, and then, then they substituted with enslaved Africans, to also do that work in the mines. So it's all tied together to this history of the transatlantic uh, slave trade. And it's even more potent given the fact that in the case of Dominican society, uh, at least from um, the perspective of elites uh, and the um, the idea of na- Dominican national identity tends to erase the African heritage. So centering those ideas is speaking back. And as a matter of fact, her work has been criticized in the Dominican Republic because it tends to center Black Dominicans. And that is not something that uh, that everyone appreciates, precisely because of that denial again, um, mostly from the elites um, about the African heritage of Dominican society. But I can think of other works too, like the poems of Mayra Santos Febres. Uh, some of the ones that I analyze have direct references to the transatlantic slave trade. And and these are works, these are poems about migration, maritime migration, you know, uh, Contemporary in contemporary times, but she she's linking that history, like she's she sees a connection, and I try to trace that connection between what's happening today um, and the echoes of the Middle Passage, because it is all connected in how society continues to see certain people as certain people's lives as not worthy, um, and I'm speaking specifically about all of these islands and places not thinking of Black lives as lives that matter. They're disposable, right, in their eyes. So so I think a lot of these works are speaking back to or challenging those ideas.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in the book, um, I should say too, the, there's a lot of images in the book that I right readers will really find to be, to be fascinating because you can see, um, in what you're, what you're describing exactly, you can see that in these, in these images. Um, and you also have like color images in the book, um, many by, uh, but by, of course, other, uh, artists as well, who I'm, I'm going to turn to another artist in a, in a minute, but, um, I really like the, the images and being able to see them and, uh, you know, uh, read them with you, and uh, come to my own thoughts as well about the the rich kind of work that people are producing. Um, and also, you talked about uh, 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 sorry the um, the the work. And so I wanted to go back to Cuba because you you also brought. Cuba, in in your first answer, Um, and this direct engagement with the sea as a border. And um, while I was reading the chapter, I thought about, you know, how we don't hear about undocumented. We don't think about undocumented migration coming from Cuba, Um, or we don't see it in that way. Generally, we don't see Cuban migrants as necessarily being undocumented because of the relationship that the united states has with cuba um, and so you include this art by um boroso and and i liked uh he has this like site satirical and very ironic take on undocumented migration um and so he has this one like mixed media installation that he calls border patrol and he equates the border patrol with like sharks and ocean life And of course, I think in the US, we think about border patrol as people patrolling a physical border, but he shows us that the border patrol can be something else when you're talking about the water. Um, And so I wondered uh, if you could talk about this. uh, How does does this work um, and the work you're looking at challenge this idea of uh, Cuban exceptionalism?
2: That's a fabulous question. Um, And uh, before I talk about Abel Barroso's uh, piece that, that you mentioned Border Patrol, I, I just want to say a, a couple things about Cuban migration and because you are correct in, in, in terms of us not usually thinking of Cuban migration as undocumented migration. Uh, and that has to do a lot, obviously, with the history between uh, Cuba and the United States, and how, uh, f- since the Cuban Adjustment Act, which passed in 1966, Cubans had enjoyed um, a very privileged position in in relation to other people coming from other places of Latin America who did not have um, the possibility of coming into the United States and being basically welcomed, right? Uh, and given the um, the support, you know, like it was all part of the structure, uh, the government funds and the, you know, sp- a range of benefits that allowed them to integrate. And of course, all of this was a result of uh, the US um, fighting the Castro regime, right? And welcoming um, these exiles from Cuba. Things started to change a little bit in 1980 with the Marielle exodus, uh, because now the people coming through the Mariel exodus were darker-skinned Cubans and more lower-class, as, as opposed to the first group that came right after the triumph of the revolution, which tended to be white Cubans and upper-classes, elites, right? So that already started changing, changing people's minds in the U.S. by 1980, but 1994, when we start seeing these thousands and thousands and thousands of people, like over 20,000 were were intercepted in just the month of, I think, July or August of that summer of 94. So, you know, once that crisis uh, unfolded and the U.S. changed its position towards Cubans, now they were not going to be admitted automatically into the U.S. They were taken to um, um, to detention centers. Um, and the process was different, which led immediately. So in 1994, uh, basically, President Clinton said, we're not going to be allowing the Cubans who are coming in rafts, the rafters, To just come into um, the US, you know, they're going to be placed in Guantanamo, somewhere in the Bahamas, but but a large number of them were in Guantanamo. So that was the moment that really, you know, for people who have uh, studied historians, sociologists, etc., who have studied this uh, particular phenomenon of the Rafter Crisis, uh, coincide with you know with stating that this changed the way that Cubans were being treated like it put an end to that uh, privileged status that they had enjoyed and then that was followed uh, the following year um, with uh, the um, I want to say yeah I, I think in 1995 I, I, uh, uh, I'm not sure if I'm correct, but I'm pretty sure 1995, uh, um, the Cuban Adjustment Act uh, is um, um, cancelled. I'm forgetting the word right now. It's, um, it's so they get rid of the Cuban Adjustment Act, which means that's what actually led to the wet foot, dry foot policy that we had in place until January 2017 when President uh, Obama stepped down. That was one of the last things he did before stepping down. He put an end to the wet foot, dry foot uh, policy. Um, But it is is that moment of the rafter crisis that marks this shift in U.S. Um, in the U.S. treatment uh, of of Cubans uh, coming here. Um, So that's why uh, there is that parallel with the situation of other migrants without documents from the Caribbean because they started having to experience similar circumstances that they had not in the past. So all of that to say that we get to the work of uh, Abel Barroso, who's one of my favorite artists uh, from Cuba. His, his work is really genius, he, full of satire, uh, just like thick with commentary about everything you can imagine, but having a lot to do with the perspective of the person from uh, the global south versus the global north, right? And a lot of play with uh, the lack of access to technology and and all of that. But in this particular piece, Border Patrol, it it is a mixed media piece that um, is basically like a box where you have in the background, there's a set of, it's like an island, there's like a few houses in the background. And then the sea is represented by... Like a glass um, box area that is etched with some marine life. Um, there's like octopuses and and different marine uh, creatures um, etched in that in that glass, and then there's these wooden cutouts of sharks surrounding this island. And these houses and their fins kind of stick out of from the glass and the the name of the piece and and you can read it in front of it is pretty bold and and uh pretty big like in your face it's called border patrol right so i found this piece fascinating because we with tend to think of the border patrol, as you said, right? Uh, As people along the Mexico-U.S. border, usually, uh, but agents, right? Uh, Trying to deter people from crossing from one side to another. So the Caribbean version of the border patrol then becomes the sharks. It's nature. Nature is taking care of Limiting the access of Cubans and other people trying to cross uh, the waters of the Caribbean um, from from succeeding, um, and it's interesting because there's a there's a poem by Mayra Santos Febres uh, titled "Tiburón de Onyx, onyx uh, shark that also has to do with the same idea. Uh, sharks being nature's border patrol, right? Um, so obviously it's pointing to the, it, it, the piece on that poem too, really emphasize the role of water as border, right? Um, for s- so many people die trying to cross, many people die eaten by sharks um so that is a very real danger that people face when coming in these very uh unseaworthy vessels honestly they're they're not made to cross those waters and i forgot to mention earlier when i was talking about mona island that mona island is about 40 miles from the west coast of puerto rico it lies almost halfway between the west coast of puerto rico and the east coast of the Dominican Republic, where many people launch uh, uh, their Yolas uh, to come. So it's almost halfway. Um, but those waters between the Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico, uh, which is called the, the Mona Channel, uh, those are some of the most, most turbulent waters globally. Uh, according to the scientists uh, I, I'm not making this up I'm <laughs> these are, these are scientists who have um, um, written about uh, this um, this area right this is the uh, the point where the Caribbean Sea and the Atlantic meet so there's a lot uh, inclement weather too there's you know storms happen and and there' there's just I again yeah uh, very very turbulent waters and dangerous waters to cross so that makes it even more risky for for the people embarking in these boats that they've you know that are homemade basically right um so so yeah sharks are a very real danger uh, that people face trying to, to cross and this is a work of art uh, by Barroso that really highlights death, basically, uh, at the hands of nature, <laughs> as a natural border patrol, as a natural way to control the traffic of people.
1: hmm yeah, that is is fascinating. Um, and so my my next question is kind of about, I guess, a research or methodological question. Um, and the question kind of the large, large question is like, how did how did the book come together? And what I mean by that is um, how did you choose the material? Um, you kind of answered this again in your first question, but were you aware of the sheer volume of material dealing with undocumented migration in the Caribbean? Um, and then it's, and it's fascinating too, because all of the work that you're talking about is, um, seems to be made by people in, in the Caribbean, right? These are artists based in the, in the Caribbean, many, many of them. Um, and so, you know, when you are ma- amassing all this material, uh, you know, that you then have to decide where it fits in the chapters. Um, and so were you doing this kind of as you were writing it or as you were discovering new material? Like, how did you, you know, categorize it? Um, and so the, those are just basically just general questions. But, you know, what can you tell us about the the research process and putting the book together?
2: That That's a very good, good question. And it just seems so nebulous now looking back, <laughs> right? But um, I'm trying to... Um again, I, I have been fascinated by this topic in general terms for a while so it's almost like I was making a mental checklist you know of works that had to do and anytime I I came across anything, it didn't matter what type of work literature or what genre um, or whether it was visual art or whatever, I, I just, I was somewhat like filing them under okay, this has to do with Cuba, this has to do with the Dominican Republic or or Haiti or whatever. Um, it was definitely a a challenge uh, to decide on the final organization of the work. There were a few iterations of how this book could have looked i ended up deciding to focus on particular on distinct islands right so let's focus on puerto rico and and let's talk about the history and why in the caribbean imaginary is turned to be this it works as this stepping stone for many undocumented migrants to eventually make it to the continental U.S. So let's talk about all of those circumstances. I found several works, of course, uh, that I analyze that have to do with undocumented migration from the Puerto Rican perspective. Right. Um, I was disappointed not to find more. I searched and searched and searched for um visual arts that represented this, and I could not find, it, it was really frustrating. Of all of the different groups that I analyzed, um, the, the one that I was left feeling I wish there was more that I could talk about was regarding Puerto Rico, which is really interesting to me as a Puerto Rican, and realizing that Puerto Rico is the final, you know, ends up being the final destination for so many people because we have a sizable Dominican population. Uh, Most are documented, a good number are not. Same thing with Haitians, right? And the fact that it continues to be, in my mind, pretty invisible. You know, this should be a subject that should be... um, everywhere in our lit- in literature and our visual arts, but it's not. So that was a little disappointing. Um, so moving on then to, okay, so how's Dominican migration seen? Uh, and then I came across the issue of, well, there's outward migration from the Dominican Republic to Puerto Rico, but I cannot, if we're talking about the region, how could I erase the migration of Haitians to the Dominican Republic. (laughs) So that led me to talk about the one land border that we have in the Hispanophone Caribbean, right? So that chapter is divided in two. So I talk about Haitian migration to the Dominican Republic and Dominican migration to Puerto Rico, and then moving on to Cuba and focusing on the Balsero crisis. um, I decided on that even though it was a little, tr- it was very tricky because, for instance, when I'm talking about when I'm discussing Puerto Rican works, all of them have to do with Dominican migration to Puerto Rico. So it felt a little artificial dividing, because then I have half of the chapter of the Dominican Republic also talking about Dominican migration to Puerto Rico. But the difference is that in that case, in the Dominican chapter is from a Dominican perspective versus a Puerto Rican perspective on the first one. Um, but again, I decided to, to do divided this way because it allowed me, um, I I thought it would help with the flow of ideas. If I'm focusing on, on the issues of each particular place, um, and also allow readers then to have a better understanding of the conditions of that particular place. That led to the migration, right? Instead of mixing them, because again, this could have been done in many, many different ways. But if I started mixing every single island and movement in each chapter, um, that would have gotten really messy. So I needed some sort of order. Mm
1: Yeah, no, I mean this, this is the thing. We all have to make these decisions when, when we put this work together, and um, it, you know, and your your arguments come across. You know, all the the material, you know, flows beautifully, and that's actually kind of what prompts me to ask the question, <laughs> because um, you know, you can. I always think it's interesting how, like, you know, you each chapter, and you know, many books have this. Each chapter has like various kinds of cultural production and they all seem to like speak to the topic, but in different ways. And so sometimes I wonder, you know, what was it serendipitous that all of this just came together? And, you know, um, mm-hmm. and it, it took goes. years,
2: it took, it took years and a lot of rethinking and rethinking and yeah. Cause I was like, do I do, do I focus on narrative in one chapter and poetry in another and visual art in another, but then that would have mixed everything. And so then I lose, I, I felt I, I think of myself okay, I need clarity. So what are the conditions in this place? And so let's talk about all the works that have to do with this type of migration and so on and so forth. So mm-hmm. I thought in the end that that would be the one that make the one way to organize um, everything that would lead to a better understanding on and clarity on the part of the reader. So hopefully it did work.
1: I mm-hmm. <laughs> so definitely did so this is uh I guess the last question before we wrap up. I wondered um how you incorporate this work on migration or on the Caribbean in your classes and teaching um and you you also talked about that a little bit how you would integrate this into into different classes mm-hmm. so if you do you have a you know an example that you can share about how you did that and how the students might have responded to it
2: yes absolutely um so... So once I started to realize this may be a potential book project, I designed a class called Borders and Bridges. And I taught it several times. And for each, so I, I based it, I, I would always start with the Mexico-US border, and we would look at, you know, articles and and works of art, literature specifically um, about that region, and then move on to the Caribbean. Like two thirds of the semester was then the rest of the Caribbean, or, or the Caribbean period, I, and then divided in Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, Cuba, um, and I'm, so. Every time I taught the class. You know, maybe a year and a half had gone by, you know, be- between times. So because I was by then doing research for the book, so I would come across new material. So I would integrate them and and just kind of cycle some out. And so it helped me, you know, in conversations and having to think about how to teach these works, um, how to approach them, how to have, you know, students react to them and, and all of that. It was, you know, looking back, it was very important for me to kind of organize my own ideas, right? And, and come to some, you know, basic conclusions about each one of these areas. So I ended up organizing the book, kind of mimicking the way I taught the class <laughs> uh, in the end. But it was it was very um, crucial to be able to try new material with students and uh, see the reaction, see where our conversations would take us. Um, so it was really fun. I, actually i I even taught the course last year after the book had come out. Uh, and it was a top, completely different experience, you know, at that point. But I, I really enjoyed it, and I was able to share with them some some excerpts from the book. I didn't have them buy the book, but but I did share with them um, some parts, and um, it, it was really gratifying. I mean, honestly, when when I talk about this topic in in courses or like I'm teaching an intro to Latino lit- Latinx literature, uh, sorry, intro to Latinx studies, um, and the last two times I've taught it. I dedicate a day to kind of give them a presentation of, of the book, basically. And students don't know this is happening. They Their minds are blown. They're like, I had no idea. We are always talking about the Mexico-US border. And I had no idea people are trying to make it from one place to the next or, you know, just going in these balsas or these jolas, trying to make it to another island, you know, like... It's really eye opening for them, and um, so that's even just with a brief uh, presentation of you know these materials. But but yeah, I enjoy the courses, and I would that's something I would highly recommend to anyone thinking of you know the next book project. How can you integrate some of the works that you're or you know whatever it is, some of the contents that you're considering, examining in your own courses, because it it really, like you have to sit with this material, you know, you have to think about it, how to teach it better, see the students' reactions. It really, uh, to me, it was really helpful with my own writing and thinking and trying to um, gain more clarity in terms of what. My perspective was about each of these, so
1: I would highly recommend it. I would end with that. <laughs> yes, yeah, no, that sounds that sounds great. Um, so the final final question is: Now that Crossing Waters is out into the world, um, what are you working on next, or currently, or what do you what are you thinking about? What projects mm-hmm. do you have on the on the horizon? Yes, so I
2: have started to do some uh, some research for sure on my th- uh, the third book project, which is going to be centered on representations of uh, Hurricane Maria in in Puerto Rico, um, in literature, every genre possible, um, and visual arts, uh, installations, even street murals. Uh, um, the focus is gonna be representations, uh, cultural works produced in Puerto Rico, but also from the diaspora. So um, so I've been collecting materials, um, these last few years, and I, my husband and I, Tom Anderson, we we worked on a project called "Listening to Puerto Rico" that was originally a mini uh, online course about the impact of Hurricane Maria, for which we conducted uh, many interviews on the island. Um, so, so that is a little bit of the basis. Um, so this is an area that I've already explored is what I want to say um, and that I'm still fascinated by. But I will st- the focus will be um, on how the works produced around this uh, natural disaster connect the issues of colonialism, uh, anti-Blackness, and climate change. Um, and... Part of the idea is to lift Afro-Puerto Rican uh, authors and artists um, because their perspective um, was, I feel like, was not really taken into account when everything, you know, post-disaster, so there's there's a lot that has been produced. Uh, it's not going to be only about Afro Puerto Rican, you know, uh, responses to it. But what a good number! I I would like to use this work as a way to to lift and and try to give more visibility, especially to those who are not as well known. Um, so so that that's um, it's kind of nebulous right now uh, and. Um, I still have to like dive into it. At this point, I'm just collecting, collecting materials.
1: Yeah. 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 And as we know that that will certainly bear, bear fruit as well. Um, and uh, you know, it, it will. And it sounds, that project sounds just so, so important as well um, for the current moment. And, you know, what people are thinking about, as you said, with climate change and with Hurricane Maria. Um, and it's just fascinating how these, you um, events can like give rise to this like flourishing of cultural productions and material that you know that you know we then can bring to bear on our analyses um, so, thank you so much for talking about uh, talking about this and this book. Um, I'm Reagan Gillum, and I've been speaking with Dr. Maricel Moreno, who is the author of the book Crossing Waters Undocumented Migration in Hispanophone Caribbean and Latinx liter- Literature and Art, published by the University of Texas Press. Thank you so much for writing this book and for sharing it with us on the podcast.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Reagan. This was a pleasure. I appreciate it.